Welcome to Keep Them Wild, the podcast that brings you the latest wildlife news and discussions on wildlife conservation, ethics, and welfare. We're your hosts, Larea and Solon. Welcome back to Keep Them Wild, the wildlife news podcast. I'm Larea. And I'm Solon, and this week we're going to be talking about the ecological impact the Maui wildfires are expected to have, as well as their effect on wildlife and domestic animals. And even before that, I have a quick correction from our previous news episode on wildlife policy updates. If you listened to the episode after August 10th, you would have heard the edited version, but if you listened to it the day it was released, you might remember that when we were discussing the new bill in Utah about mountain lion hunting, I said that trapping is still prohibited. This is incorrect. The change to the bill actually makes trapping and snaring legal as a means of hunting mountain lions in Utah. And this is just another reason to oppose this bill and to keep listening for updates as we keep learning more about the progression of how this bill is going to evolve in the next legislative session. Thanks again to Utah Mountain Lion Conservation for pointing this error out. We really appreciate this kind of feedback. Also in that episode, when I was talking about the discussions happening in Kansas around baiting, I mentioned something about the diseases Kansas may be trying to manage for, including foot and mouth disease, because this was listed on the Kansas Department Wildlife and Parks website, along with CWD and bovine tuberculosis as a disease of concern and something that they want to keep managing. But I actually just learned this week that foot and mouth disease has been eradicated in the U.S. since 19. 1929. So that's pretty cool. And also means it's probably not much of a concern and isn't one of the diseases they're going to be managing when they or isn't one of the diseases they're going to be talking about when these discussions around wildlife baiting continue. And I kind of wonder why it was still listed. And maybe this is just because they have to monitor it for reoccurrence or something like that. Because if it did come back, that would be a pretty big deal since getting a disease-free status is a really hard thing to get as a country. So yeah, I just found that interesting and worth throwing in there since since we were talking about um, mistakes in last episode. And if you catch any mistakes, please don't hesitate to reach out. We're here to share accurate and up-to-date wildlife news, and we're really happy to make these corrections and provide updates as they're needed. So if you heard something that was incorrect or you want to give us any other feedback, please contact us at adventurersforanimals at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at adventurersforanimals. Both these contacts will be listed in the show notes. And like Solon said, this episode is going to be about the Maui fires, but because news is still rolling out daily about these fires, we expect more updates to come and would especially love your feedback if you feel like we're missing something here. I just want to acknowledge the devastation of these fires and how they're impacting the people of Maui, and we certainly don't want our coverage here to take away from what they're experiencing or their needs during this time. But this is a wildlife and animal welfare news podcast, so we are going to focus on the impact these fires are having on wildlife and domestic animals. And with that, I'm just going to recap what's been going on with the fire so far. So we're recording this episode August 23rd. I'm not sure how fast our turnaround is going to be, but just if some of this info seems a little outdated, 
um, that's where we are in time right now. So something that I wasn't really aware of until I started just learning more about the fires in preparation of this episode is that there were seven fires burning on two different islands at the same time. I know most of the focus has been on the largest fire, which devastated Lahaina, but there have been some other fires as well. The wildfires on Maui started on August 8th, and today they've killed at least 114 people, forced tens of thousands of people to evacuate, and have devastated the historic city of Lahaina. Cadaver dogs and rescue workers have searched 85% of Lahaina's charred ruins for victims, and officials said that the death toll will likely rise, and that there are more than a thousand people still missing. So this is the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century. And firefighting crews are still battling flare-ups. So like I said, the largest fire was in Lahaina and was 90% contained when this news story that I'm getting this information from, um, from Reuters.com, was released, which was um, August 21st and has so far burned over 2,000 acres. And a few days ago, another fire in Kula was said to be 85% contained and has burned 678 acres. And then smaller fires elsewhere have been said to be 100% contained or completely extinguished. The fire in Lahaina destroyed or damaged more than 20,000 buildings. Most of these were residential buildings. And according to the damage assessment maps by the University of Hawaii's Pacific Disaster Center and the Maui Emergency Management Agency, 86% of these buildings were residential. FEMA estimates that it's going to cost $5.5 billion to rebuild Lahaina and has approved more than $7 million in assistance to more than 2,200 households. Some of the major issues residents have brought to light include that there could have been more done to alert them. Many witnesses have said that they had little warning, some only having minutes before they had to evacuate, and many people had to flee to the ocean to escape. Sirens stationed around the island intended to warn of the impeding natural disaster never sounded, and widespread power and cellular outages really made it difficult for people to know where they were supposed to evacuate or that they needed to evacuate at all. One of the things that I thought was interesting about this, you know, especially with the preparedness factor, is that there were a lot of ecologists in the area who said that, you know, this area of Lahaina had like almost a 90% risk of burning down every single year due to the dry brush in the area and the dry grasses. So, you know, they had been advocating to help citizens be more prepared and to have emergency systems in place, but that just hasn't happened over the past several years for them to have the appropriate measures in place to figure out how to effectively evacuate, especially for this part of the island. They also have one of the lower vehicle owning rate compared to the rest of Maui. So it's like 7% of the people who live there don't own or have access to a vehicle which, you know, for an island that doesn't really have much public transit, if at all in areas, is pretty kind of a high number for Was giving it, people a chance to evacuate. So 7% do have vehicles? 7% don't have access to any oh, type yeah. of vehicle. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. yeah. So like not, not one in their family or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, what you were saying about the grasses ties into what we're going to be talking a lot about in this episode. Um, Some of the reasons why this fire was so bad and then some of the concerns as far as the ecosystem resilience in recovering from this fire. So do we know why this fire started yet? 
or is it still technically under investigation, even though I think we have some ideas? It is still technically under investigation. Hawaiian Electric Industries shares have lost half their value, or they did at one point because they are the number one suspect, I guess you could yeah. say, because poor management of electrical lines is right now thought to be, based on all of the evidence, is thought to be the number one cause. And then there are all of these other contributing factors that we'll talk about that made it so much worse. But the initial fire is thought to have been an electrical fire. Regardless of whether or not the electric company started it or not, I think it'd be good to like mention some other factors here that are a common cause of wildfires too, just so people can think of it as like a preventative measure for the future. I'm not saying that it was caused by an individual person, but obviously, you know, there's other factors that like, I mean, smoking around tall grasses is obviously a bad one and smoking's not good for your health anyway. But then there's also things like catalytic converters. If you're parking your car on top of tall grass, that hot catalytic converter can start a fire. So that's another, another possibility I've heard brought up. Another one is people dragging chains, like when they're pulling a trailer. That's another common cause for wildfires. Is so for those of you that aren't familiar with hauling trailers and that kind of stuff, like you have those chains hooked up after you hook up the ball um, onto the trailer hitch and the and the change they can drag and they create sparks and those are a common cause of wildfires as well. I'm trying to think if there's any other major causes, but I know those are some of the factors where like people just kind of overlook it when they're driving or, you know, doing certain activities and those often cause wildfires. You know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of publicity around like putting out your campfire already and a lot of like you know we know that starting the fire can cause a wildfire if you're you know building fireworks. a fire for, fireworks are definitely definitely a major one for sure yeah and even, even the small ones too sparklers or like you know little smoke bombs those kind of things you know if not more so because they're probably not being managed by a city with a fire department around yeah. So. And even though the cause of these fires on Maui have not been officially determined, we do know that the gale force winds from Hurricane Dora, the drought that Maui has been experiencing, and high amounts of invasive grasses all contributed to making this fire move very quickly and grow very large. Yeah. Definitely. And I think uh, understanding the contrast of like heavy rains and then severe drought that the island's getting and the effect that that can have on wildfire. So before we get into the types of grasses and all the invasives that are potentially, you know, well, not potentially definitely making these fires a lot worse, you know, when you have these heavy rain seasons with a lot of vegetation growth, it seems very good for the vegetation. But then when you hit with a dry season, you have all this dead vegetation left over. And that's going to be something that they experience here on Maui and that they're experiencing a lot of parts of Hawaii where, you know, the vegetation grows rapidly and then they're hit with a drought where it dries off. Yeah. And if we kind of zoom out a little bit, although we don't know what the ecological impacts of these fires are going to be yet, because it's happened just so recently, but we do have some ideas on what some of the main concerns are. And these include threats to coral reefs, the invasion of more invasive grasses, and additional pressures on already endangered species. 
So I was watching an interview on CBS News with Elizabeth Pickett, who is the co-executive director of the Hawaiian Wildfire Management Organization. And she summarized a couple of these points. So she was talking about the invasive grasses and coral reefs. And that wasn't even something that I was thinking about. I was thinking about the ecosystems on the island and the endangered species, knowing that Hawaii has so many endemic plants and birds and so many endangered species. But I wasn't even thinking about the ocean ecosystem. But when the soil is burned, it's so much more susceptible to erosion, which is why we see so much flooding after these high severity fires. So the burned soil is then going to end up in the oceans. And this will cause large sediment plumes, which block sunlight and then also change the water chemistry, both of which have disastrous effects on coral reefs. And this fire in particular brings another dimension to this because much of what was burned were homes and industrial buildings, which means that there's going to be additional toxic materials and pollutants introduced into the surrounding oceans and coral reefs than if it was just a forest fire, for example. One of the tragic things about Hawaii is the slopes are super, super steep there in a lot of spots. So, I mean, it's just ripe for runoff of sediment. Mm -hmm. really into the ocean and into the streams nearby. And another sad thing too about the slopes being super steep is that when you get fires closer to the mountains, they climb super quickly because it's near vertical and the vegetation's all the way up it. So it's just climbing up these steep slopes. And that's kind of what they saw back in the West Maui fire back in November of 2022, which is where I was kind of getting a lot of my ecological info on, on how this fire might damage the ecosystem you know, in the future. And so they've, they've really had a lot of fires that have been damaging the corals and, and the vegetation and the endangered species throughout the whole island for some time now. Let's talk about the second big concern. And this is that there are so many invasive grasses in Hawaii. And like you were saying, Solon, when you get periods of moisture, they really thrive and they get really big and thick and luscious, and then they dry out during the dry season. And then this has been a prolonged dry season. And so we have just this tinderbox. So not only were they one of the reasons that made the fire so severe, but these invasive grasses are also also going to be some of the first plants to regenerate after the fire, which means that they're going to encroach even further on native plant communities and come back in more places that maybe they weren't before. This is not only going to threaten native habitat and vegetation communities, but again, it's going to increase that fuel load and hopefully we can prevent it from feeding future fires, but that's kind of what it looks like it might do. And this is called the grass fire cycle. And if this isn't interrupted, it's just this positive feedback loop of more fire, more grass, more grass, more fire, more fire, more grass. And it's going to be really difficult post fire to manage this invasive grass because so much of the land that was burned is privately owned. And so it's going to be really hard to enact conservation plans and preventative measurements and all of these vegetation regulations that we might be able to implement on public lands because you're going to have to be able to either get landowner buy-in and they're already burdened by so many things, starting with having to rebuild their homes if they are even able to afford that. And, and we, I mean, we talked about in our last episode about different states that are 
primarily private owned, having conservation grants that get landowners bought into these different conservation programs. And that would be great to see that implemented here. But I worry that people aren't going to be given enough funds to just get their lives back to where they were, let alone then trying to manage the ecosystem to prevent future fires. Yeah, I worry about that too. And one of the things that I was thinking about is a lot of the non-native grasses have taken over these huge swaths of land that were previously plantations, either for sugarcane or for pineapple. So the last sugarcane plantation left Maui in 2016. And then since they've left, all these giant ag fields have just been overtaken by non-native grasses that are just fuel. So I've seen some people bring up like, are any of these companies going to bear any responsibility for it? And that's tough to say because agriculture, they really kind of fall into a different category compared to development projects. But typically you'll see when someone leaves a site, whether it's like a construction site or whether they're building a project, people always have certain standards and metrics that they have to meet to keep the habitat relatively native and to keep the ecology of the area healthy. But sometimes ag doesn't fall under that same metric. So I don't know for sure if they're going to bury any responsibility, but it's something that I think you know, especially since this was so devastating, they might start talking about because they occupied so much of the land around Lahaina. And now it's just all been what was plantation, the corporations they just left, and then it's been overtaken by these non-native grasses. Before these plantations and all this agriculture was in the area, a lot of this western part of Hawaii consists of what they called a dry forest or a dry shrubland, but I've mostly seen it referred to as a dry forest. And this primarily composes like the southwest and southern portions of Hawaii, which is going to be like the drier parts of Hawaii and particularly on Maui as well. So with the onset of people starting to use the land in Maui and throughout all of Hawaii, along with that came invasive species, agriculture and ungulates, particularly for cattle grazing or sometimes for hunting or for other sources of food. And with that, they lost about 90% of the dry forest regions that were all native plants, especially on Maui. I have a random fact there. I used to work on this project in Oregon doing population estimates on black-tailed deer. And before working on this project, I didn't know about black-tailed deer. Like I was only familiar with mule deer and white tails. And I learned that the only two places that there are black-tailed deer are Oregon and Hawaii, because those were the deer that were imported to Hawaii because they're smaller than mule deer and white-tailed deer. And so they thought they'd do better in Hawaii than other deer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So Maui has axis deer, axis, axis deer, A-X-I-S, not (laughs) axis. So that was one of the non-natives that were brought to the island of Maui. And they also, they help spread these invasives along with cattle and along with wild wild pigs as well. And a lot of the grasses that were brought to the island were for cattle grazing, which included the guinea grass, molasses grass, and buffalo grass. These were brought to the island, you know, specifically for cattle grazing. So I think that kind of 
makes you think like how much are how much is ranching culpable and all of this like for bringing all these grasses to the island in the first place and now we can't seem to stop the spread of it and then now ironically one of the management strategies that we have for it which i have conflicting feelings about is more cattle grazing because they're the only ones that are really going to eat this grass on the island and keep it trimmed so i have very conflicted feelings about that i think maybe it's a good short-term measurement but we also have to think that they're also actively spreading the grass as well so mm -hmm. they might be keeping it short but you know that sets the precedent that you have to continue cattle grazing indefinitely as a terms of management unless you try to reduce the area of it because they're only going to increase the area if they're if they're one of the issues why this grass is being spread well and that's one of the arguments people use on the mainland for having more cattle and ungulates is to restore grasslands because we know that having ungulates in an area increases the grassland. Yeah, exactly. And if, and if it's not supposed to be grassland like Hawaii or parts of Maui that isn't supposed to be grassland, then it's not probably the most effective management strategy. Yeah, exactly. And Hawaii, they have native grasses, but they're not really fire tolerant grass. They're not going to spring up quickly if there's a fire. So they do come back after a fire, but then these non-native grasses, particularly the guinea grass is going to pop up a lot quicker than the native grasses. And it's also along with a lot of the native grasses and native species, like everything on Hawaii, it can be incredibly localized where it's just like certain plants and vegetation are just found on super specific parts of the island. So when those areas burn, it's just gone. You know, it may be extinct or extirpated from that area, just never, never to return or it might only be in like a botanical area. Yeah. And when we say on Hawaii, we mean on the Hawaiian islands, not the island. Correct. Not the big island. Not the big island necessarily. Yeah. Because, yeah, in this instance, we are talking about Maui, but the principles that we're talking about apply to all of the other islands and just islands in general. They're very, very delicate as far as their ecosystem resilience goes, because so many of their species are only found on that island and they have only evolved with the natural forces and competition naturally occurring on that island. And so when we bring all of these invasive species to these islands, it can just have these devastating effects. And we've seen this time and time again on the Hawaiian islands. We've seen it on islands as big as Australia. We see it in New Zealand. Just any island is going to have invasive species and endangered species problems. Yeah. And I think Hawaii is like a particularly scary place for invasives just because there's so many people that visit Hawaii every year. While there are inspections to prevent people from bringing invasives to it, at least the time that I went there when I was a kid, it didn't seem like it was like the strictest thing in the world. When you think about if you're going in and doing field work as a biologist, you do things like clean your boots and your shoes before you go into other areas, make sure that you don't have little bits of grass stuck to your shoes before you bring it into another, another area that you're working. And I just, I don't think that you could have that high flow of people coming to Hawaii and then have that proper inspection done on every single person, nor do I think a lot of the people going to Hawaii really want to be bothered 
with it. Um, and I wonder if it's maybe a product of it being a state of the United States. And yeah. so some of, and I, you know, we have very, there is variability in regulation between the states, but it's going to be different implementing those types of measures than a for example, New Zealand, because New Zealand is a country, they can create their regulations on a national level. And they do have a lot more strict regulations. They have like very strict regulations on the cleanliness of your bag, your shoes, like the clothes that you come to the country in. And I mean, it's just my assumption that because Hawaii is not its own sovereign nation, that it's harder for it to implement these types of restrictions because it still has to appease whatever tourism, if not appease is maybe not the right word, but has to meet the federal regulations of the U.S., which in general are less than some of these other countries. I think a lot of, I don't want to put words in the mouth of the locals of Hawaii, but I know that there's been a lot of frustration with how much it just caters to tourists as opposed to the locals that live there. When you think about the housing crisis and the drought crisis, and I think it's just important to bring attention to all that and how much it just, the money caters to tourists. And these are outside companies that- I mean, if you go one step deeper than than locals, indigenous Hawaiians, you know, exactly. there's, a, there's a lot of non-indigenous people who consider themselves locals. Yeah. Um, and th- they they have more advantage in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Significantly. Yeah, definitely. So the, we touched on the other major concern, which is the fact that the Hawaiian Islands and Maui are home to so many endangered species. And I was trying to look up to figure out how many endangered species specifically are on Maui. And I couldn't get a concrete number. But the one article that did pop up the most, and it was written about by so many different news sources, ranging from like the Smithsonian to the Washington Post, they're talking about a small endangered bird that only has 40 individuals of the species. And the research station was not far away from Lahaina. And it just demonstrated the fragility of of the species um, of this bird in particular. This facility was not affected by the fire. But if it had been, this bird would have pretty much gone completely extinct. Or there are a few individuals on the big island as a little bit of an insurance policy, but the majority of the remaining population is on Maui. And I, yeah, I mean, just this was the main story that kind of popped up, but all of the other species that are living wild in, in the forests of Maui and and not just birds, but also plants. I know a lot of the endangered species on the Hawaiian Islands are plants. And I think it's probably at this point really hard to quantify what the wildlife impacts are. And when we get more info about that, once people and communities are kind of getting back on their feet, I'm sure there'll be some research and resources kind of dedicated to figuring out the wildlife and ecological impacts further. It'll be interesting to see what has really happened. Yeah, I know when I was looking into that fire they had in November of 2022, 
it was difficult for the ecologist to really get a good idea on the damage that was done and if they actually lost entire species or not just because it was so hard to actually get you know boots on the ground research effort which is really kind of needed for plants at least you know and you know depending on the wildlife for wildlife too i mean birds aren't easy to see from a helicopter necessarily uh, maybe raptors but not not little tinies yeah yeah and i mean a lot of it also is do you have any previous data to compare it to so i guess one of the devastating points there i suppose is that we may never know how many species were lost because we may not have even known all of the species that were there before. So yeah, we've touched on coral reefs. We've touched on native vegetation communities. We've done what we could about wildlife. And there's one more group. What about domestic animals? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> As you can imagine, many of the over 2,000 buildings that were destroyed, many if not most of them probably had a pet or pets in them. And it is still unknown what has happened to these animals. M many of them are assumed to have perished in the fires because in many instances, families only had moments to evacuate and had to make the devastating call to leave their non-human family members behind. And so we just kind of want to provide some information on how if you're interested in helping domestic animals who have been impacted by the fire we have some information that we're going to share so the maui humane society has been one of the leaders in the animal rescue efforts on maui and despite already being at capacity when the fire started they've taken in as many animals as they can and they've helped a lot of rescue efforts and they've also provided a lot of guidance to community members who've been wanting to help and right now, the Maui Humane Society is asking for emergency fosters, donations of food, kennels, litter, and most importantly, money. I think right now, they need funds more than anything else. They have been given some supplies locally, and now they really need monetary donations, which is great if you're here on the mainland and don't have a way of getting supplies there. That's an easy, very actionable thing that we can do. And if you're on the island or on the mainland, some other ways you can help is to become an SOS foster. So anyone with space can come to the shelter and foster an animal. And then other ways to donate if you're off the island is through the shelter's Amazon wish list. And then again, monetary donations are going to be really crucial to covering the costs of surgeries, procedures, and then getting the specific supplies that they need. Do you know much about flying back to the mainland with a pet? I know that it can be kind of tricky because the Hawaiian islands and like Hawaii as a state is a rabies free state. Yeah. And that means that most clinics don't necessarily carry rabies vaccinations because there's no reason to vaccinate animals once they're on Hawaii. And I have heard from someone who used to live in Hawaii that had to get a vaccine shipped to Hawaii so that she could get her cat vaccinated and then brought back to the U.S. because it's a requirement for any animal coming into the U.S. to be vaccinated with rabies. So that might be kind of a complicated process. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, in this article, they were talking about people becoming fosters on the island and also the mainland. I'm not totally sure how that process would work. You'd have to do a little bit more digging on the Maui Humane Society website. I'm sure people who live on other Hawaiian islands have an easier time if they were trying to foster or adopt an animal from Maui. Yeah, that's that's what I was wondering. So, I mean, I guess this is where, you know, more funds for the you know, different humane societies will really come into play if they have to all of a sudden purchase a bunch of rabies vaccines before they can send these animals elsewhere. Because, yeah, I wasn't sure. I was like, I knew it was a whole, uh, rabies-free state, but I didn't know if they still vaccinated in the state of Hawaii or not. So, yeah, and I hadn't really ever thought about that. It turns out in this episode, I'm finding lots of things that I'd never thought about. Um <laughs> But I was I was learning about vaccination protocols and that if you are considered free of a certain virus, that it is not standard to vaccinate for that virus. So, for example, at the beginning of the episode, I talked about how we've eradicated foot and mouth disease in the U.S. So that means that we also don't vaccinate livestock for foot and mouth disease because there's no reason to vaccinate if there's no disease. Right. So like smallpox and humans. Right. Another way people can support animals on Maui is to join the Maui Fires Pet Help Group on Facebook. And this is a way to connect people who can help to those in need without utilizing shelter resources. So a lot of families are going to need to surrender their animals because so many people have been displaced and are now homeless. And this is a way to connect with people right away and just help. I mean, I can't imagine having to make that decision. And if I could take some animals to help comfort people and knowing that they were in a good home, I would do it if I could find a way of feasibly making that happen. So if you can, that's a great way of going about it again, without having to use the Humane Society resources. And then the Hawaii Animal Rescue Foundation is another organization that can benefit from some monetary donations as well. Yeah, there's there's a couple of organizations that I want to post as well too. And one of them, I always like just posting for the most local, supporting the most local organization as possible. I, I think the locals know where the funds need to be typically in these events. And one interesting one I came across was the Regenerative Education Center. And what they do is they help with like more regenerative agriculture and like more sustainable agriculture in the area, but they've kind of developed a good response to the wildfires in Maui. And they're also helping with housing and whether it's like everything from like camping to actual facilities and setting up showers for people. That's, I think, like a good human-based one. Another organization who is doing wildfire prevention and mitigation is the Hawaiian Wildfire Management Organization. From August 9th to September 9th, they are going to be donating 100% of their proceeds towards their wildfire prevention and mitigation programs that support impacted communities on Maui. If you want to donate or learn more about their work, we'll have a link to their website and all of the organizations that we just mentioned in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Keep Them Wild. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast. If you have suggestions on stories, topics, or other content, please email us at adventurersforanimals at gmail.com. 